Well, thank you, uh, Zach and the worship team for leading us this morning in our worship to the Lord. The song we just sang is one that uh, over the last uh, year and a half I've listened to almost every day in uh, my own quiet time with the Lord. And the message of that song is just stunning. That hymn is just stunning. So it was a joy to sing it with you this morning. Uh, Pastor Jason, I have to say this about your church. You have an amazing, friendly congregation who love each other, and they love to be together, and they love to eat. And uh, it's been great getting to know so many of you. Um, I don't think we've ever, I mean, I think Beth and I would say we're relational people, but uh, I don't think we've ever had this much concentrated relationship in one time. And it's been, it's been just really amazing. We're thankful for the many of you that have opened up your homes. Uh, for those of you that have emailed and called and wanted to talk on the phone, many of you uh, wanted to get together over coffee and uh, a meal. So it has just been a great delight to hear what God is doing in your heart and in your life, uh, both individually and as a church. And uh, Beth and I have just been greatly blessed. So thank you for your kindness and your hospitality. Last week, we looked at a passage of Scripture out of Matthew chapter 9. And when I was asked to do uh, the messages for these, this season in your life and in our life, I wanted to try to think about how to take an idea and present it in the time frame that uh, we had together as a church. And so when I thought about what, what is it that God is doing for his glory through the church, it is spreading the amazing news of the gospel of the kingdom of his son. And you are, as a church, the first and primary display of what that kingdom will eventually look like when Jesus Christ comes again to reign on the earth. You are the body of believers, the community of people that God has raised up out of darkness. He opens your eyes. He quickens you. Paul talked to the Ephesians about this in chapter 2. And he helped you to see the beauty of God in the face of Jesus through the truth of the gospel. And somehow you believed. You, you, you had faith in that. And you become the first and glorious expression of all that that means uh, on a fallen earth and in the midst of imperfect people who have been called together to celebrate the truth of their relationship to God the Father, their relationship to God the Son, their relationship to God the Spirit, and their relationship to one another. It's really an amazing thing that God is doing. But how does that get out to the rest of the world? How does that impact the culture around us? And so I thought about Matthew 9, and we looked there last week, and we spent time watching how that passage that we normally think of as, you know, there's this huge harvest out there, and there's no laborers, and if we don't get busy, then that harvest is somehow going to go to perish. And by the time we actually listen to Matthew talk us through that whole paragraph, we came to a very different perspective that God himself is raising up this harvest that he is about to re uh, reap. And through the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the work of Messiah, Jesus, he has been going about preparing this amazing harvest to be reaped. And he has also been at work in the harvesters, getting them ready to go out and reap this harvest. And the last thing he said to them as he talked to them about what he had been doing and prepared them for what they were going to do in chapter 10 as they went out to the nations and then in chapter 28, I'm sorry, to Israel and then in chapter 28 as they went out to the nations. As he began to get them ready for all of this, he gave them one instruction. He said, you need to pray to the Lord of this harvest and you need to ask him to send laborers into that harvest. In other words, you need to pray about the harvest. And then on Wednesday night, we went back into that series of miracles that God did that sort of announced his power and his authority and his ability to draw people out of that broken world 
and bring them into this amazing kingdom that he himself was establishing. And we looked at this woman who lived on the fringes of everything, lived on the fringes of society, lived on the edge of life because of a debilitating and, and disheartening and really disgraceful condition that she had endured for 12 long years. And one day, as Jesus was on the way to the home of an important religious official in the city of Capernaum to heal a little girl, or actually to raise her from the dead, 12-year-old girl, this woman who also for 12 years, the entire lifetime of that little girl, had been suffering with this debilitating, disheartening issue, comes to Jesus and touches him. Touches the hem, the edge. She lived on the edge. He touched the edge of his garment. And in an instant, everything changed. And you remember the story of how Jesus turns around and he starts looking through the crowd and he has this really sort of jaw-dropping question because the entire crowd is touching him and just pressed in against him and he wants to know, who touched me? And Peter looks at him and says, what? What do you mean who touched you? Everybody touched you. And we're on the way to a very important person's house to do a very important thing, and you want to know who touched you? And Jesus, Jesus wasn't asking because he didn't know, right? We, we know that. He knew exactly who touched him. And the woman knew. The only people who didn't know were, were Peter and the disciples. And so there was this amazing moment where this woman comes and falls down on her feet, or knees rather, before the Lord, and, and just tells everything. She just lays it all out there. And Jesus says to her, daughter, and in that word changes her entire reality. And that's what Jesus is intending for the gospel to do everywhere. That little story, that personal story about this unnamed, unknown woman living on the fringes of everything, brought into the very center and heartbeat of who God is and what God is like. Daughter, your faith has made you whole. Go in peace. That is the gospel message. And that is the gospel impact. So, pray the Lord of the harvest. So this morning, my question for us is this. Is there anywhere in Scripture where we actually have a prayer that sort of models for us what it actually looks like when we get before the Lord in our own time and in our own way and in our own space and we actually talk to Him about that harvest? What does it look like when you pray for the harvest in obedience to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 9 when he said, pray the Lord of the harvest. Is there anywhere where we have a prayer that sort of models what that looks like so that we can actually shape our thinking and shape our praying about the harvest? And the answer to that is yes. It's right here in this text that Pastor Jason read to us this morning out of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. It is the fourth time in three chapters that the Apostle Paul prays in this book. So one of the things that immediately jumps sort of to the front of our thinking as we just listen to Paul write to these believers uh, at a church that he had, uh, he along with Timothy and Silas had had the wonderful privilege of being used by God to start. So there's this intense connection between Paul and the, and the people that are reading this letter. And, and already, before we get to chapter 3, verse 1, already three times he has prayed for them. You can learn a lot about a person through their praying. And you can learn a lot about a people who are being prayed for. And so, sort of as the context to uh, our prayer here in chapter 3, go back to chapter 1, just flip over in your Bible or maybe scroll in your, in, on your device to chapter 1, and notice that, that Paul prays in chapter 1, verse 3, and that prayer goes all the way down to verse 4. Then he prays again in verse 11 of chapter 1, and that prayer goes all the way to the end of chapter 1, and then he prays a third time in chapter 2, verse 13, and that letter, uh, or that prayer goes all the way to the end of chapter 2. So three 
pauses in what he's saying to these people about praying for them. You know, there's an amazing thing that happens when somebody comes up to you and actually says, look, I I want you to know something. I have been praying for you. And, And it's not the, oh, I prayed for you, kind of, you know, just the polite thing to say when you meet with people, I prayed for you this week. And, and it's not an insincere thing. That, that actually probably happens. But there's something that God does in our hearts when we encounter another believer that says to us, I want you to know that this week God brought you to my mind and I have been praying for you about X or Y or Z. And what, what happens in that moment is you begin to realize that God is actually shepherding you because God put you on that person's heart. And that person began to bring your name and your situation before the amazing throne of grace, the source of all enablement. So there is this unusual thing going on that three times in this brief letter, Paul has literally stopped his train of thought because God has been impelling him to pray for these people. And what you begin to discover is that these people were in very, very critical moments in their life as a church, and they occupied a critical space in the culture of their day. You'll remember as you went, go back to 1 Thessalonians, that the Apostle Paul had come from Philippi, and he had come down to Thessalonica, he and Titus and Silas, uh, or Timothy rather, and Silas, and as they sort of came into town, you could tell that it had not gone well for them at Philippi. They were bruised and battered. They bore on their body the mark of severe beating. And they come into this city and they begin to preach and announce the same gospel that they were beat for announcing in Philippi. They announce that same gospel in Thessalonica and the entire city stops to hear. And out of that city comes a harvest that God has been getting ready. And Paul says to them, you know, chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians 1, you know what happened when we came and what kind of men we were in your midst and how the Spirit enabled us to speak the word of truth that we declared to you and you received that word with much affliction. In other words, there was a lot of opposition to this message, but you received it anyway and you received it with joy because of the Holy Spirit. And you turned from idols to serve and worship the living God and to wait for the coming of his son from heaven. And by the way, you had never heard about this son before we announced him to you. This was not a Jewish city, although there was a Jewish constituency in the city. So here come three strangers with this amazing message that nobody's ever heard of before about a God you can't see with a temple not made with hands And his son, who happened to live in Jerusalem and be crucified there, uh, supposedly rose again from the dead, and he's coming back from heaven, and we should worship his father, and we should serve him while we wait for his coming, and we've never heard this before, and all of a sudden people turn from everything they've known and believed to serve and worship the true God of heaven. How do you explain that? And the answer is, there's only one explanation. The Lord of the harvest has been getting these people ready to be harvested and he has opened their eyes and caused them to resonate with this message that these three strangers brought into their midst. You can imagine the amount of persecution and you can imagine the pressure that was on these new converts. And Paul writes about this in 1 Thessalonians. He really writes about it in 2 Thessalonians and he wants them to know that in the midst of all of this persecution and affliction and pressure, that is exactly how the gospel is going to be spread. And it's in that context that he comes to them in the five verses that make up the first part of chapter 3, and he says to them, Finally, brothers, I want you to pray. And now, instead of just praying for them, Paul invites them to join him in praying about this harvest that God has been reaping in their midst. 
and that God is reaping through his ministry in other places and that God intends to reap going forward. So how do you pray when you find yourself like the Thessalonians in the midst of a hostile culture where the worldview is completely opposed? It's not just different. It's opposed to who you are and what you believe. Thessalonica was the capital city of a region called Macedonia. Macedonia was the home turf of a very famous king, Greek king, named Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great had four generals. One of his generals was a man named Cassander who married Alexander's half-sister. So, I mean, he sort of married into power. He married into the family. And he named this city Thessalonica after his wife. And uh, later on, when the Romans came in, they saw that this city was sort of the seat of everything. The power was all here. So they made this city the capital city. And they turned it into a second Rome, sort of a Rome away from Rome. So if you wanted to know what the Roman Empire was all about, if you wanted to know what the legal system looked like, if you wanted to know what law and order looked like, if you wanted to know what the Roman religion looked like, if you wanted to kind of know what philosophy looked like, and you couldn't get to Rome, and you lived in this part of the empire, you went to Thessalonica, and you could find it all there. And right in the middle of this comes the gospel. So that's the context. So what does Paul pray for? What does he say they should pray for? He says there are four things that you and I need to pray as we pray about the harvest. And so here's the first. Pray, first of all, for the powerful success of the Word of God. Pray for the powerful success of the Word of God. Pray for us that the Word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. Pray for the powerful success of the Word of God. So look at the terms that Paul uses to express this. Pray for us that the Word of the Lord, the message of the gospel, the message, the logos, the message that God has sent about His Son, through His Son, for the world. Pray that that message, the message we brought you, pray that message will succeed broadly and wildly. Pray that it would run freely. That's the idea behind the word speed ahead. When you think about that little word speed ahead in the text, sort of the word that Paul used in his day was a word that had the idea of running. And there were two sort of images that would have immediately come to mind uh, if, if you were listening and you heard that word. You would think of a runner running a marathon. So you would, have, you would immediately think athletic competition. You would be thinking, for example, about the Athenian Games, or you would think about the Olympics, and you would think about the marathon runners that would run, and there would be obstacles in the course that they would speedily overcome. And the other context in which you would think about that term would not just be a marathon runner, but oftentimes in the heat of a battle, there were runners that would carry important messages about the battle or instructions to those in battle or news about the battle to and from different locations. And they would be running sort of like a marathon, but they would be running it under very hostile conditions. They would be running it in battle conditions. And that's the idea here. Paul is saying this message that we brought to you, do you remember how we sort of dragged ourselves into town we had been in prison, we had been beaten. This message that we brought to you, this word about the Lord, that you are now going to be taking to others, this message needs to run freely. It needs to spread and speed ahead. So this is the idea of spreading rapidly and scattering widely and succeeding in the, in the mission that God has accomplished to do. Paul says, pray for the rapid spread and success of God's Word. And then he says something else. Pray that the Word of the Lord would speed ahead and that it would be honored. And the idea there speaks now about its reception. This, when this Word comes 
and, and enters into a community or into a place or among a people, pray not just for its spread, but pray for its reception. Pray that it would be received for what it is, the Word of God. Pray that it would be believed for what it says, the truth about God. And pray that it would be personally embraced by those who hear it, just like it was personally received and embraced by you when it first came into your midst. I mean, do you pray for the harvest this way? Are you praying that the word of God that is changing you, the gospel of God, the word of God, the truth of God that has captured your own heart and that is transforming your own life, are you praying that it would spread rapidly around you in whatever part of the constituency that God has given to this wonderful body of believers, if you draw a 30-minute circle around the epicenter that, that is right here this morning, all of you live somewhere in that, in that circumference, are you praying that through your life and your ministry and, and your words that God would use you to spread the gospel in that part of the circle and that it would be received? for what it is. And you know, you know that happens because it happens in your heart when you hear the word of God. I mean, how many times have you been sitting in these chairs and Pastor Jason or Pastor Josh or somebody has stood here and opened up the word of God and that word began to run freely right into your soul and God began to touch you about something that the word wanted to adjust or wanted to encourage or wanted to believe. I mean, has that ever happened to you here? You know, I, uh, I told you last week, I think, in pictures, and, and so this, this illustration has helped me uh, immensely about this in my own life, and I, I share it with you in, in, in the spirit of, of maybe that it would be useful to you, but somebody said one time, and, and I tend to agree with them, that there, there, are, there are two kinds of men uh, in, in our country. There are Home Depot, Lowe's kind of guys, and everybody else. You fit one of those two categories. And so on Saturday morning, if you are a Home Depot guy and your wife says, honey, something's wrong with the sink. That is like the most joyous news you could hear on a Saturday morning because you know if God is good and the Spirit is willing, it's probably going to involve a trip to Home Depot. And if the Lord is abundantly good, you might even get to buy tools that you don't have because, you know, you've got to have tools to do whatever, right? And then there's everybody else. And those the rest of us, if our, if, if our wife says, honey, the sink's not working, we're like, okay, dear, I'll take care of it. And your wife's like, nope, no, 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 please. Can we just call the plumber? It will go so much better in our marriage if we could just call the plumber. And, and ultimately, it'll be cheaper and it, it'll get done. So you, you fit in one of those two categories, right? So... You walk in your house on uh, maybe after church, and, and most of you don't remember houses like this, but you remember when houses had wallpaper? You remember, how many of you ever lived in a house that had wallpaper? Okay, okay, that's good, all right? There's the, those, are, those are the pillars of the church right there uh, because you're, you're old enough to remember wallpaper. And you walked in, and, and you're looking around your house, and, and you look over at the seam where the wallpaper is, and there's a little corner that's peeling up. Okay, what you do next is, it's, it's like category, it, it tells the whole lot about you, right? If you're a Home Depot guy, you're like, you go over there and you take the piece of corner that's peeled up and you just rip it off. Because you want to fix that. You know, I'm going to Home Depot, it, 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 you know, it, if, if I'm really walking with the Lord, there could be wood rot under there, so I might have to break out the sawzall and all kinds of other tools. And it's going to be glorious, right? And then if you're like me, you lick the edge of the wallpaper and you stick it back down and you hope that it's good enough. And if that doesn't work, you take a picture and you hang it there. And sometimes you walk in the house and there's a picture way down at the bottom and you're like, our kids are really short. Um, you know, that's a little bit like what happens to some of us when the Word of God just creeps in or flows freely to some area of our life, and the Spirit of God says, I, I want to address that. I want to touch that. 
And at that point, we either can sort of lick it and kind of push it down or put a picture over it and go on, or we can stop and allow the Word to do the work in us so that it can do the work through us that God wants it to do in the areas where we live and do life. And so pray for the powerful success of God's Word. There's, there's a second thing that Paul says, and you can see this in verse 2, pray for protection as that Word begins to do its work. Pray for the success of the Word of God, but pray for protection in the work of God. Once the Word begins to do its work in your life, and once God begins to allow that Word, that incredible message that has so transformed you to flow through you, you can be sure of one thing, that there, there will be opposition to what God is doing in you and what God is doing through you. And you can see that in verse 2. We have, and pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. And he's going to explain why. Because not all have the faith. Not everybody has embraced the truth about Jesus that is transforming us. This word that brought life to us is, is absolutely repugnant to the people that are opposing it. And they will go to any length to resist it. They will go to any length to oppose it. They will go to any length to persecute those who bring it. And that's why Paul describes the protection from wicked and evil people in this way. The idea is uh, that, that there are people who are lawless and malicious who are intent on doing anything and everything they can to stand in the way of this gospel. And you know what's amazing to me as I, I thought about this text for this morning? The Apostle Paul knew exactly what this was like because at one time he was one of those opponents. Think about that. He is praying with knowledge because he himself had opposed the gospel. Let me give you a couple of examples of this in your New Testament. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul, speaking about his past life, said this, Many of you heard of my former life in Judaism, externally righteous, zealous for God. I am, I am going to do whatever I can to obey God and to be zealous in my protection of Judaism. He says, you all heard about this. And then he says this, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing to Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. He was white hot in his passion to persecute the church violently. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 actually deepens this and, and gives you an even sort of deeper window into this where you find the first Christian martyr, Stephen. And here's what we read. And Saul approved. The idea there was he was exhilarated by this. He was joyfully approving. He approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Acts 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest asking for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Paul says you need to pray because there are people like I used to be who are going to do everything they can to oppose this message. And then it's not just wicked people. There is an evil one who is going to use anything, anything, people, circumstances, occasions, to discourage you, to dishearten you, to distract you, to damage you. Listen to what happened to Paul after he became a preacher of this message that he used to oppose. He says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 
verses 3 through 10. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. And then he starts listing ways by great endurance in afflictions, in hardships, in calamities, in beatings, in imprisonments, in riots, in labors, sleepless nights, in hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and left through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors, yet true, as unknown, yet well-known, as dying, but behold, we live, as punished, yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. Paul says, that is what you can expect. When you pray to the Lord of the harvest to send you into the harvest, that is what you can expect when you take this amazing message and you live it out. So pray for the powerful success of the word. Secondly, pray for protection in the work of God. And then thirdly, pray for obedience to the will of God, which is going to give credibility to the message that you are proclaiming and at times even suffering for. Pray for persistent obedience to the will of God. In verse 3, Paul bridges what they're going to experience and what's going to give credibility to the gospel with something grounded in God, and it is God's faithfulness. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you. He will guard you against the evil one. It is God who sent you. It is God who equipped you. It is God who enlightened you. And it is God who is going to energize, sustain, and protect you as you take this gospel everywhere. He is faithful. But what will give this message credibility or what will discredit the message in the heart of the hearer? And the answer is the life of the messenger. And that's why Paul makes such a big deal here in chapter 4 about the obedience of the believers and the obedience of the church. Notice how he says it. We have confidence in the Lord. In other words, I would have expected Paul to say, now we're confident about you. But he's actually saying we're confident that the Lord is going to do something. This obedience that he's about to talk about is not going to come out of the strength of the individual believer or out of the resolve of the individual believer or even out of the guilt or the exhortation of somebody in the body. The source of all of this obedience is going to come from the Lord. And Paul says we're confident that the Lord will do this. And and what it looks like when the Lord is at work in your life and in my life is this. We do And we will continue to do the things that God has commanded through apostolic instruction. This is not just, uh, you know, any any and all obedience that's in mind here, although certainly any and all obedience is, is an atmosphere that should characterize our life. There's a specific obedience that Paul is looking for and asking the church at Thessalonica to pray about, and it is obedience to apostolic instruction. Because the apostolic instruction is how you adorn the gospel with your life. It's when you believe and you obey what God has said in his word about the faith. And Paul says, I want you to know that when I pray and when you pray, I pray confidently that the Lord who has been enabling you to obey the gospel will continue to allow you and enable you and energize you to obey the gospel. And you know, that's, that's amazingly comforting, isn't it? Because, I mean, I, I, and I, I, maybe you're not like this, but I am. Um, I tend to look at an area of my life where there's not obedience, and that sort of dominates everything. It frustrates me. It discourages me. It disheartens me, particularly when that is an area of great struggle and, uh, and, 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 
you just can't seem to ever get permanent victory in that particular area. And, and so what tends to happen is, you know, here's your whole life, and you tend to define your relationship with God with this piece of it. And I'm not saying the piece isn't important. We're, we're going to come to that in a minute. But Paul is actually wanting you to look back to what, what God has enabled. This is not something that you and I can be proud about. That Look, look what we did. Paul is saying, look at what God did. Look at, look at the radical transformation that has happened, Thessalonians, in your life. I mean, when I met you, you weren't at all like this. You were worshiping idols. You were not worshiping God. You, you had no interest in the Yahweh of the Old Testament because you didn't know anything about him. And those of you that had heard about him weren't interested. And, and, and his son, you didn't even know his son. And now, just, just a short time later, I'm looking at this radical transformation that God has wrought in your life, this obedience that has happened to you, and it is a moment of great celebration. Have you prayed and thanked God for that kind of obedience in your life? Because all of you have it. All of you have it. In fact, I would venture to say that the vast majority of you have far more areas of obedience in your life that you should be celebrating before God than you do areas of disobedience. So, Paul says, when you pray about the gospel, think about the obedience that God has brought about in your life so that you would believe and obey the demand of the gospel that you would, you would repent of your sins and that you would follow Jesus and you have been doing that. Pray with confidence because God has helped you to obey. And now let's talk about future obedience. I'm also confident that in this area where there may not be right now obedience, I'm confident you will obey. And I'm not confident that you are going to be the source of that obedience. I'm confident that the God who worked all of this obedience in your life is going to eventually work this obedience in your life. It's a stunning prayer if you stop and think about it. Paul says, pray and have confidence in the Lord regarding yourself that you are doing and will do the things that we command, the apostolic instruction. And, and, and so that brings me to the final thing this morning, and that is this. So if, if we think about this sort of pathway we've been on, God has been preparing a harvest. We saw the amazing source of the power that transforms individual unknown people flowing out of Jesus into the life of this woman who touched the hem of his garments. He's been getting harvesters ready to go out into that harvest to reap them. And the last thing he said to them was, you need to pray to the Lord to harvest. And now Paul is giving us the prayer that we can pray. Pray for the success of God's work. Pray for personal protection in the work of God. Pray for persistent obedience to the will of God. But what's going to fuel all of that? Where is the fuel for living that kind of life day after day after day after day when it gets hard and it's difficult and and you really do meet human opposition and you do meet pressure? Where is the fuel for that kind of ministry going to come from? And I'm going to suggest to you that it comes from the final thing in the prayer in verse 5, and it is this, pray for progressive growth or understanding in the way of God, who God is and what he is like. Paul says, pray that the Lord would direct your heart. The word direct there is is a word that carries the idea of inclining. It's not just informing, it's shaping. It's a shaping word. It's a word that, that is often used in the scripture to talk about how God brings about a settled orientation, a deep uh, commitment to or conviction about. And and, and Paul is saying, pray that God would bring a deep conviction, a settled orientation in your life, in your inner man, that's the idea about heart, about two stunning realities. One of those realities is the love of God. It could be that Paul is talking about your love for God. In other words, what should impel you to go and live this kind of a life and spread the word of God in your part of the circle 
a 30-minute circle or whatever you, wherever it is that you live and what should impel you to um, ask God to protect you and help you to persevere in the face of opponents and opposition and render obedience is your love for God. And there's no question that our love for God certainly is a motivation. But I think Paul's talking about a much bigger love than that. I think he's talking about the love that God has for us. I think Paul is saying, pray that God would do something so stunning in your life that it would forever change your perspective about your life. And pray this way because apart from the work of the Spirit of God, you have no capacity to understand this. You and I do not have the capacity, we don't have a category to understand the love of God apart from divine enablement. Think about it this way. We're image bearers. We are created in the image of God, so we have the capacity to love. The kind of love that the Bible describes as agape love. We have that capacity because we're made in the image of God. And we have categories for how we understand what it means to love. Let me give you some examples. You and I have a category. We kind of know what it feels like we understand, even if we can't always define it well, we know what it's like to give and receive love as a son or a daughter to a mom or a dad. We have a category for that. It may not be done well in your life, but, but as, as, as people living on this planet, we understand and we have a category that, that kind of helps us understand the kind of love that a mom or dad has for their kids and the kind of love that a kid has with their parent. We know what it feels to give that love, and we know what it feels to receive that love, and we also sometimes know what it's like when it's missing, right? So we know that. We kind of have a category for love between ourselves. We know what it's like to love our brother or our sister or our cousin or to receive love. We have a category for that. We have this amazing category that, that happens, you know, somewhere along the line where we have a... Uh, a moment where there's a love that is ignited for a special other person that we're going to spend the rest of our life with. We, we know it's like we have a category for that love. What we don't have a category for is the kind of love that God the Father expressed to God the Son and that God the Son expressed to God the Father. We don't have a category for that. We can't... We, we just don't have the capacity to even... We can see it dimly, but we don't have the capacity to see and feel and understand the white-hot intensity, the passion, the joy, the intensity of that love that goes from the Father to the Son, and the Spirit is witnessing all of that and experiencing all of that. And one day, the Trinity says, we want this love to be experienced by a group of people. So how is that love going to not just be visible to them, but how is it going to actually be experienced by them? And the only way for that to happen is for the Spirit of God, for one member of the Trinity to come and indwell you. That's why Romans, Paul says that the love of God is shed abroad by the Spirit in our hearts. You have the ability to experience something that you would never be able to experience because the Spirit of God indwells you. But what had to happen for the Spirit of God to indwell you? What had to happen before one member of the Godhead could come in and indwell you? And the answer is, you had to be redeemed. You had to be saved. You had to be rescued. You had to be cleansed. And so the Spirit of God took the ministry of indwelling you so that you could experience the love of God. But the second member of the Trinity, the Son of God, took the ministry of redeeming you so the Spirit of God could indwell you. And that's the next thing Paul talks about. May the Lord direct your hearts to this amazing love and to the endurance, the steadfastness of Christ in procuring that love for you. Remember how the 
writer of Scripture describes it, who for the joy set before him endured what? The cross. You know, when you see this love and you taste this love, it changes everything. You're, you're, you're like, God, if I'll go anywhere. I'll do anything. And it's not coming out of guilt, and it's not coming out of legalism. It just, this just explodes all of that. When you experience the unadulterated intensity of God's love for you, and you realize there's nothing I can do to quench that love. There's no sin that is going to remove that love. I am the, the special object of the most amazing, intense joy that God delights in you. God actually delights in you. There's an intense joy that God has in you. And when that hits you, 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 number one, you just want to fall on your knees and, and say, thank you. And then number two, you want to get up and you want to tell other people about this because it's available to them. And you say to yourself, I know I could get beat up for it, but man, I'm telling you, these people need to know this. Man, it, it could be costly. It may, I may have to say things to people I would never otherwise talk to, but man, this is amazing. I want to talk about this. You know, say, well, what does it look like? Go back to Matthew 9, 8 and 9. What, what was Jesus having to tell the leper? What was he having to tell the guy that, Got forgiven of his sins and his legs were healed. What do you have to tell the demoniac? I mean, these people were just, they were, they couldn't wait to talk. They were like, wow, they couldn't wait to talk. In fact, at times Jesus was like, okay, now don't talk right now. Right? You need to actually keep this quiet. So why is it that for some of us, it's so hard to talk? It's so different, right? When you go to those passages and you, you see the leper and you see the blind man and the mute man and you see Jairus and the daughter and you see this woman and all of these people radically transformed by Jesus through this love we're talking about. Somehow they knew and they wanted to talk about it and and why is it we don't? I don't know that I have a good answer for that in your life. I think in my life it doesn't happen because somehow this intense love that Paul ends his prayer with has gotten lost somewhere. It's just gotten obscured. It's got, there's a picture hanging over it because I wanted to lick the wallpaper. And so somehow or another, my life has just gotten cluttered up with pictures of what the Christian life should look like or what righteousness should look like. And it's just, it's obscured the intense brilliance of this love that's there. And I'm afraid to pull up the wallpaper because of what I'm going to find there. And, and Paul's saying, no, 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 rip it up. Because when you rip that wallpaper up, what's going to come blazing through is this intense delight and joy and love that God has for you. And that's exactly what you see in Matthew 8 and 9. These people, broken, despised, edged out of life, and they somehow get to Jesus and he rips the wallpaper off. And the next thing you know, they are the most amazing recipients of this love that God has. And you have been, and I have been. So we have every reason, don't we? We have every reason to walk out of here with a heart that is just on fire, thanking God. God, thank you for this love. We, we have every, every hope that, that the God who helped us to see this love and to turn from our unbelief is going to sustain us in future grace and in future belief. We have every hope for that. Every confidence for that. And when that fuels us, it's, it's just natural for us to go and say, look, this is what happened to me. This is what God did. And God starts shedding that love in your heart, and it leaks out, sometimes through your tears, sometimes through your mouth. Sometimes it's through your life, and that love reaches another person, and it reaches another person, and it reaches another person. And the next thing you know, there's a, there's a church that has been formed and established and energized by this amazing love to deliver this amazing news. So let's pray to that end. Shall we, Lord, thank you that we can come to a text like this and be energized by it, be encouraged by it, 
Lord, we do recognize that you are the Lord of the harvest and you've been preparing all along men and women that you intend to reap. And you do it with incredible power and incredible affection and deep love for them and a deep desire to glorify your son. And we know that's true because at some point along the way in our life, it happened to us. And so, Lord, here we are, and we pray that the word that came to us, that forgave us, that encouraged us, that renews us, would spread rapidly. Lord, we know that there are going to be opponents and opposition to that, so we pray for protection in our own personal lives and as a church. Lord, we know that the message doesn't need us, but we can affect its spread by our obedience or our disobedience to you and to your word. The credibility of the messenger does impact the message. And so, Lord, we thank you for the ways in which you've helped us to obey the gospel. And Lord, while we're frustrated about the areas of our life where there is obedience that needs to be formed, we come confidently knowing that you can and will bring that obedience about, and we ask you to do it. And then, Lord, we are just so amazed, so so stunned, and so thankful for the intense delight and the love that you have for us. Lord, we don't even love ourselves this way. Lord, we get up in the morning and look in the mirror, and most of us don't even like what we see in the mirror. We can't even imagine. We don't have a category for the kind of delight that you have in us when you see us and that your Son takes in us, and that your Spirit witnesses and experiences. And Lord, you've made that possible. May the Word that revealed it to us this morning grow that understanding in us. And may that love fuel us as a church. May it fuel us as a people. May it fuel us as a family. May it fuel us as an individual believer to say to you, Lord, I'll go anywhere. I'll do anything. Because... I love you. And I'll pray these things for all of us in Jesus' name. Amen.